You are listening to the KM Lobby. This incredible edition is provided to you by Pioneer Knowledge Services, the 501c3 providing knowledge management as a charitable function in the USA. I am Edwin K. Morris. Joining me today in kindred KM spirit in action is Janetta Guele, based in Italy, and Monica Denise Perrin from England. Together, we welcome you to the cause. Welcome to another exciting episode of KM Lobby. Today, we are focused on the sector of law, the business sector of law, lawyers and such, courts and such, and all that legal stuff that everybody loves. So that's our topic today. But the unique thing is that these are all KM folks that are in the world of lawyers. So it's going to be exciting. We're going to talk about some deep level stuff, some high level stuff, and some impactful stuff and things that'll help you as you move forward in your KM operation. Knowledge management is what Pioneer Knowledge Services is all about. We're here as a 501c3 in the USA building knowledge management abilities in other nonprofits and educating the general public, which is exactly what this podcast is all about. So joining me today, I'm Edwin K. Morse. I'm the president of Pioneer Knowledge Services. I've got Monica Denise Perrin, who is a co-host and from England in a little town called London. And we've got Janetta Guelli, who is the executive producer, if you will, of KM Lobby. She gets her own parking space. She's got her own coffee mug. I, she's very, very influential in the world of executives. Uh, and she is based out of Italy. So welcome, uh, Janetta and Monica. Welcome to you. Good to be here. Yay, we're all here. And joining us today, we've got Vishel Agnahotri, Evan Shankman, and Ian Rodwell. Now, I'm going to go around the horn here and ask each one of you to give us a little intro of who you are, why are you there, and what's going on. Evan, you go first. Sure. Thanks so much uh, for having me, everyone. Uh, I'm Evan Shankman. I'm the Chief Knowledge and Innovation Officer at Fisher Phillips. We're uh, a large labor and employment law firm, about 500 attorneys, 36 offices in the U.S. that exclusively provides advice and counsel to employers, employment work, immigration, benefits, and so on. So anything workplace related. I've been in the KM space now for a little over 10 years. And before that, I practiced law for about 10 years. Um, I was a partner in a law firm, then saw the light, realized that that the KM world, innovation, uh, legal tech was a much more enjoyable place to be. Been there for 10 years. I've been at Fisher Phillips for the past two years. Fabulous. Well, thanks for being here, Evan, and thanks for making the time. My pleasure. Vishal, you're up next. Sure. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Vishal Agnihotri, as Edwin uh, introduced me. I'm the Chief Knowledge Officer at Hinchon Culbertson. Hinchon Culbertson is a full-service firm. Their home base is Chicago, but we have about 24 offices as well nationwide. I have been in knowledge management for the last 23 years, so it's the only career I have known, and I've seen the various aspects of knowledge management from business research to knowledge technology implementation, training, change management, adoption, et cetera, and then the evolution of knowledge management into process redesign and innovation, project management, and so on and so forth. I've spanned from private consulting boutique firms where what we sold was knowledge management as a service to the big four and now in the big law firms. Thanks for being here. You're bringing a whole world of new experience for this show because most of the folks that we talk to 
and this goes back over the last six years with the other podcast too of pioneers. I don't know if I've ever run into a CKO that that's just like KM's the only thing they've ever done. That is like, oh my gosh, you're iconic. All right, before I introduce, uh, we go around the horn here for our next guest. I want to share a little something to help introduce Ian. Order! Order! Sit, order! I know what I'm doing. Order! Okay, uh, all right. Uh, Ian, do you, can you recognize that voice and what's happening over in that area? What, what I think that? That, that's, uh, that's John Burko, um, who was the former Speaker of the House of Commons, trying to bring order into the UK. Into, yeah, here we go. In, into our kind of parliamentary system. <laughs> Quite a character. Quite a character, <laughs> yes. All right, Ian, the horn is yours. Okay, so I'm Ian Rodwell. I'm Head of Client Knowledge and Learning at uh, Linklaters. Linklaters is a global law firm. We have around 2,500 lawyers in a number of, uh, of offices around the world. Um, I started there almost 30 years ago, um, setting up a know-how system, a knowledge system in our real estate department. Um, before that, I worked as an information manager. So I'm a non-lawyer in a legal world. Um, I've done various kind of KM things over the, over the years. Um, my role now is working almost exclusively with, with clients and what we call value-add services. So some of that is helping them with their own knowledge projects. But probably I do mostly, what I do mostly now is uh, workshops, masterclasses, training sessions on everything from leadership, high-performing teams, creativity, all stops in between. And I'm also doing a very part-time doctoral research uh, into storytelling in organizations and the way that we use stories as a way to encode and share knowledge. So that's me, Edwin. Wow, that's exciting I'm not, too. Yes. And I'm not John Burko, by the way. Well, so can you scream that like that? I mean, can you really push it like uh, that? Is that? Well, well, I might not have a voice for the rest of this, uh, this uh, podcast understood. if I do. So, uh, so probably best if I don't. So in order to keep it inclusive to other countries, what's this? Sounds like law and order. I knew a guy that was a policeman and retired. I said, all right, so tell me, if you had to pick your police shows out there, what's the closest thing to reality? He said, law and order. Yeah, well, that sound effect does happen when you go into court. So it, it is credible. <laughs> <laughs> it's not this? Something like or that. This. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. All right. Enough. Enough. All right. I'm having fun. All right. So... Monica, would you like to start off, please, with our first volley of questioning? Thank you all for being here. Um, it's a pleasure to have you all. Um, as we've got these changing times now, we've spoken about storytelling. We, we, know, we, we know that um, knowledge sharing happens with, you know, with a lot of serendipity. But how are we now, in today's post-COVID world, creating more formal knowledge sharing opportunities that don't happen in those water coolers? Don't be shy. Don't be shy, Ian. I'll, I'll go first, Monica. I'll just start with saying I think if there was any hesitation, sort of misconception of what knowledge management uh, was or could be or the potential of it, it has been clarified 
largely because of all of us working remotely. Um, there was a lot of knowledge gathering, if you will, in an informal way by walking the halls, as you know. You could quickly, I'll just give you a real life case, uh, gather the update on a case by walking around the paralegal, the associate, and then maybe running into the partner at the coffee shop and uh, you're set for the client meeting. We don't have that now. Of course, we have technology. We can speak over calls and Zoom and uh, such. But what it has brought to light is the unnecessary effort that it takes to gather those bits and bobs to put the piece together uh, that you'd like to present back to the client. So knowledge management has always been about connecting the dots, making sure the right information surfaces up at the right time in the right hands. Technology helps with that, process helps with that, training helps with that, so on and so forth. But what that has pushed, I think it's been a catalyst uh, during these months to just awake to the possibility and almost now the necessity for having it. So whenever we go back to whatever the normal is, I know new normal is such a cliched tone now, but uh, it's already cliched in 18 months. But the, the point is whatever the next phase of business will look like in hybrid mode, we know that tools and technology will help us just stay more synced up, more connected. Whatever pieces were serendipitous earlier, I think even those are getting pushed into a more formal space. Outside of that, there always has been a formality to knowledge management. Attempts have been made. Well, how far do we want to go back? But in corporate America, attempts have been made in a formal way, uh, in a disciplined way, for at least the last 25 years when McKinsey came out with a concept of knowledge management and Bain and BCG and the other strategy KPMG, houses were... The, you know, Accenture. KPMG, yes. Anderson. And they... <laughs> Exactly. Author Anderson, then Accenture. Um, they all realize that if they're selling knowledge for a living, they need to capture, harvest some of it back as well, whether it's in the form of formal methodologies, checklists, what have you. Uh, and that's no different than law firms either. Law firms, we sell our knowledge, uh, our experiential learning to our clients, right? That's what they value. Uh, that's what we bring to the table. So capturing portions of it that can be either repurposed or learned from or shared, better learning, uh, keeping in mind client confidentiality, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is the goal. Folks like Ian, like Evan, like myself, those um, that is largely the role that we play in the firm. There is also space for knowledge management in terms of marrying public uh, information and what we have in our firms. Evan can probably talk about it. He's been doing some remarkable work at his current firm uh, in the last couple of years. This value in mashing up various yeah. pieces and streams of knowledge to make it uh, more than the sum of parts. Evan is jumping up and down. Go ahead, Evan. Before getting into some of the cooler stuff that Michelle just sort of alluded to, one of the things that really struck me, I think, about practicing attorneys and, and KM folks during the pandemic was you know, the serendipitous... I'm just sort of going to sort of be an, an expert uh, and I'm an attorney and I can do things on my own. I don't need to, to knowledge share. Um, that doesn't work anymore uh, in this world because especially in the labor, labor and employment space, if you have a multi-state employer, there are so many issues that have sprung up due to COVID-19. There are different laws in the states and counties for 
who can wear masks, who has to wear masks, when they can, when they can't. Leave laws, laws that states and towns and whoever would pass that would say how much time these individuals would have off and when they would get off and issues about temperature testing and all the privacy laws. There is really no way that any one individual can get up to speed on those. And the laws kept changing. We would get updates when um, the CDC would issue new guidelines and then the states would try to follow and employers would try to follow. There really was a need for what I consider not the, the sexy, exciting data analytics and AI and cool KM stuff that people would love to focus on, but just classic KM, right? This was sort of the heyday 20 years later for exemplars, templates, forms that our employers really needed to have the gold standard remote work policy, the gold standard masks in the workplace policy, the gold standard form that you use to log temperatures of employees and things like that, because our employer clients needed that information and our attorneys needed to be able to get it to them very, very quickly. And at times, a half an hour after the CDC issued a new guidance or OSHA, our Occupational Health and Safety Administration, issued new guidance, we needed to have something ready to go that the firm could stand behind and say, this is you know, top draw, fantastic quality, accurate, up-to-date stuff. So um, just coming up with a system for the entire firm to really put down everything and collaborate on best practice, gold standard, continually updating model forms, templates, and samples were something that, that really mattered um, in 2020, 2021 in ways that it probably wasn't as important for the 10 years before that. Precedents and exemplars and templates, they were sort of something that everyone considered was, you know, it's KM stuff, but then it wasn't the cool thing people talked about anymore. But it became just mission critical for law firms last year and this year. Um, I don't think it's going away. There now is a, a reinvigorated need um, and desire to have people in the firm collaborate and contribute those model documents, exemplars, templates, forms, give them away to clients for free, put them on your website, get eyes on your website, help the general public. All of that stuff was just put into hyperdrive after years of dormancy because everyone needed to have compliant forms, compliant documents, um, at the ready within 10 seconds notice um, and know that it was good and not just something you could find on your DMS from 12 years ago and you presume it's good. This is stuff that was ever changing. You know, the pandemic was um, a real opportunity for KM practitioners to be able to very quickly add value and get helpful documents into the hands of their attorneys, helpful documents and information in the hands of their clients and the general public, people that even aren't their clients still got the benefit of all of the resources, time and effort that law firms started putting out this stuff on their websites because we all needed to chip together, help out the world, get through this. But there were a lot of great KM you know, attributions to all the good work that was done. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Evan. Ian? Well, I was going to say, I think what, what Evan has said you know, just demonstrates why we do this stuff, why we do this thing. Because we always say that, you know, that through the systems that have been evolved over kind of many, many years, Whoever you speak to within the firm, they have got access to the collective knowledge and experience and insight and expertise, you know, going, going back years. So you're, you're totally connected. And I think I was doing a panel last year, again, another law firm panel, and we were talking about how I think last year kind of demonstrated the value and the benefit of the investment that we'd all made in our knowledge systems over the years, because suddenly separated from each other, 
connected only via this, we were able to tap into, as you say, all these checklists, best practice, all the, the wikis, the databases, everything else. You had this massive resource to draw upon. But going back to your question, Monica, on serendipity, I've been running a number of workshops over the year where we get, and I've done in, in link laters with conferences and clients. And you know, one of the questions is, you know, what have you lost? What have you lacked during lockdown? And one of the things that was always coming up from people who I never thought this would be a, you know, it would matter to, would say, it's that random encounter in the corridor. It's the, the casual collision, the serendipitous moment. And I hadn't realized how much information I get from this. Yeah, also adding in, you know, the social connection that those encounters serve, but the opportunity to swap ideas, to sort through problems, to get things off my chest, just to, just to kind of be innovative and, and do stuff. And this was a constant theme. And we, we all kind of realized we couldn't really be serendipitous through this. You know, we are all here because an invite has been sent out. You know, this has been an intentional meeting. It wasn't just a casual encounter somewhere on the, on the Internet. And I think that the kind of importance of this was borne out by the Bank of England. The Bank of England, Chief Economist at the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, said last summer in his autumn statement, you know, the thing he most missed was the serendipitous moment because he said serendipity is the cradle of creativity. And I think why that matters, I was in the office last week, I was walking through our cafe area, and um, I'm very good at overhearing conversations, listening into conversations, and there were two people. I assume one was a junior lawyer, one a more senior lawyer. And the junior lawyer was saying, suggesting great being back in the office because I'm just learning so much because now I see things in context. I understand things in context. And I thought, yeah, that kind of bears out you know, what we've been thinking over the, over the last year. So I think what we do is a blend of that more formal stuff, the explicit side of KM, and then what I call the more social side of KM and where we can get those to blend good things happen. And I think what's happened over the last year has demonstrated the value of both of those things. I was going to say maybe the storytelling aspect, though, Ian, you were saying you were doing a doctoral thesis in it. I think that aspect has become a little bit more acceptable in business psyche, whereas it might have been, you know, Edwin has been mentioning pre-K and post-trade uh, repeatedly through the podcast. If you think about it, that's how we start to learn uh, when we're kind of blank slates, if you will. So I, just, I, I think that is an aspect that is more, uh, that's taking on more hold. I also think it's important because the business world today is so complex that we operate at the intersections of business, law, technology. We don't have the luxury of being disciplined in only one dimension. You still need expertise, obviously, and the best of the best uh, lawyers, any professional with their salt will be really good. You know, you talk about T-shape, Delta shape, all of that stuff, but they'll be really good at their craft. But there's such a huge need for that intersection as well, where the top of the T <laughs> touches the bottom of the T for a range of various other skills and other sort of broader um, knowledge bases. And I think the storytelling or the what's in it for me or the adoption exercises that we do are key for people to understand 
why, especially in law firms where they're really measured and compensated around their billable, uh, that's still largely the, uh, the, the working model, the business model for law firms in most part. The what's in it for me pushes the adoption, pushes the learning. They need to see that it's either important to the client, to propelling the firm into the future, to propelling themselves into the future. I would say that you're probably doing it with all your workshops and sort of seeding it over the course of time, not to put words in your mouth, but I think that's probably where the learning is happening. And you're doing it to some degree to that effect, right? Because you can't just throw something at them and say, use this. This can do this, this for you. You almost need to convince them of it, right? Persuade them to use it. You know, everything that you've talked about in terms of your storytelling experience, your workshops, I think that is what moves the needle for from a learning perspective as well. Before we hand off to Janetta for the next question, the serendipity thing, I understand totally that the value of that towards innovation and knowledge sharing in a free form, free range kind of way is an absolute must. But to me, there's a little bit of faulty logic there that it's only going on at the physical space and not the digital space. Because in my work experience, there's always a culture, always a culture that either shares or does not. And there's always a level of trust issue in a lot of different reasons to be able to share. Uh, it's personality, it's situational, it's contextual. So just... I want to throw that out there as a bookend to this whole piece because the serendipity is excellent. It's something to shoot for. How do you make it a strategic goal? All good things. But do we have to just say it only happens in the physical space? Is there a re-education or reframing that needs to have happen? And maybe, maybe the last two years or so has been that reframe to where people will now open their minds up to different ways to connect. Yeah. Go ahead. No, oh, well, uh, well, I was going to say, I, th I think that probably conflates two things. I think it conflates serendipity, which is about randomness, and a culture of being open and communication. And I, I think you're quite right. I think the, you know, one of the things that we've always sort of, you know, when I've worked with kind of clients or others, and they've talked about the knowledge systems that they're looking to implement, and I said, well, that, that's great. But what is the culture behind that? Is there going to be a culture? where people are going to be open in sharing what they know? And then is there going to be a culture where people are going to use the systems that you've developed? Because over the years, I've seen a number of initiatives where technology has been fantastic, effortless, but nobody uses them because there's not that culture there. So I think, yeah, I think that's a big part. You know, what's that, what's that phrase? You know, culture, Trump strategy all the, every time. Um, yeah. yeah, I know it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Um, if yeah, you haven't got a culture, it ain't going to work. But I think the serendipity is maybe a right. bit of that. Excellent. Janetta, thank you for that answer. And Janetta, you're up. So first of all, thank you, everybody, for joining our podcast. So my question is related to culture. So I know by far that your law firms are mainly based in U.S. and maybe in U.K., but there are many other countries where knowledge management is really unknown. It's barely known. So I think that there is a cultural problem. So from your point of view, how the law sector adapt KM at the international level? So behind your country, this is my real question. What difficulties they have to implement at any level KM and law firms? 
in other countries because UK and US are really far away from the rest of the world, according to my knowledge, to my best knowledge. So what's your point of view on this, your experience? Yeah, so one of the things I'll, I'll say, and you prefaced your good question by saying, you know, in the US and in the UK, we're far advanced in knowledge management, so people get it. But what about countries where they don't get it yet? When I joined KM, no one at my firm knew what KM was or, or why I would go into this unknown profession. A lot, you know, my parents never heard of it. Peers in law firms saying, are you doing like tech stuff? What are you doing? Um, so no one got it here. And it really has been over the past 10 years, I would say, that KM really went mainstream in the US. All of the same things that you're talking about needing to convince attorneys in, in Malta or Italy or wherever else, um, we're not that far removed from it in the US. And to the extent that you're holding the US in, in the you know, legal KM world as you know, a seasoned veteran, it's really only been, you know, there are some firms that were in the KM space 15, 20 years ago, but very, very few of them. Um, it's only been the past you know, maybe five years that firms started having KM people in the C-suite, large firms, uh, the top you know, 200 firms or so. Some firms are just starting their KM vision and having never had a KM department in the US. So I wanted to preface this all by saying, don't feel like you're so far behind that it's not even worth starting if you haven't gotten it yet. Um, America is still re relatively junior in it as well. Uh, it's only been you know, 10, 12, 15 years or so. Let's make an example. So based on my knowledge and my experience, uh, in Italy and Malta, knowledge management is really unknown, and especially in the law and the law firms. And I don't know if this is a, from cultural perspective or there is something else. So how would you convince some law firm partners outside, you say, US and UK to invest in knowledge management? And from which point in implementing knowledge management? How would you convince them? So, so Evan, before we rotate mics to answer Janetta's point, so who's leading? If we're in first grade, if we're out of pre-K now, and now we're in first grade, who's in 10th grade? Who's, who's in senior uh, out there in the world? I think the UK has been the leader in this space. They started it. Is it the Golden Four? What do they call it? Magic Circle. The Magic Circle, what? exactly. Magic Circle. Whoa, whoa. Right. It's, it sounds. It sounds very impressive. <laughs> They're the seniors. Um, I think at this point now, there are law firms in the U.S. that would probably be juniors, okay. uh, maybe sophomores, right. uh, because they really have come a long way. So th that being said, convincing. Um, when I started in my role, I was the first KM person at my other firm who's now been doing KM for 11 years. And it really was all about getting quick wins. Um, you need to get quick wins to the attorneys. There are some fantastic three, four, five-year projects uh, in the KM world, You know these more advanced data analytics projects, some AI projects, amazing stuff you could do with machine learning. All of that's terrific. But if you're trying to convince a law firm in a country that doesn't recognize what KM is yet and what the value is to legal, by saying I have this great five-year project, it won't work. Um, you need to be able to come in and explain how very quickly within three months, you'll be able to roll out client-facing extranets that will be a fantastic way to exchange information with clients. And that's something clients have been asking for. We can provide that. You know, Whatever the issue might be, there are tech solutions that are out there now that are so far beyond the tech solutions that were around two, three years ago, that KM practitioners, innovation folks could come and roll those out in two, three months, four or five months. 
Um, very simple things could make a huge difference. There are so many low-hanging fruit in law firms nowadays that I think you need to go in and pick a couple of low-hanging fruit and show how quickly you could make a very meaningful difference, things that will not be just shelfware where you get them to purchase something and no one uses it, things that will assist them in their day-to-day workflow that they will love, the attorneys will love, they will not know how they practice without it. And then in the background, you could be working on these bigger, more exciting projects that will get a lot of buzz, will be something no other firm has done, but that's not what you could do when you're trying to convince them that CAM is right for their firm because you need to have much more instant or semi-instant gratification in order to show your value, show your worth, show them that it was a good investment to bring you on board, to start this initiative, to build a team, purchase a software, whatever it is. And then you can do some really cool things three, four, five years after. Uh, But that's what, from my perspective, um, I tried to focus on in year one, year two, uh, year three, and then by year seven, eight, nine, ten, you're doing great stuff, and it's a lot of fun. And you built that momentum. All the attorneys have bought in. The attorneys now want to run pilots. The attorneys now want to contribute to your initiatives. The attorneys are asking you, "Hey, I saw this other firm doing this. Let's do it." Get a big coalition of attorneys and management folks at the firm who love what you're doing and get excited by it, and then it's no. What you're talking about is the similar path to success across every sector. It has been the challenge of anyone that has seen the light and saw the future of KM and got it up here that they were very lonely Mm -hmm. in most business sectors because you have to sell it. You have to build the value. So thank you for for punching that in the face because that's the problem. That's the huge issue we've got. And one one other thing I'll say just to, to bookend that, in the legal sector, attorneys are very, very, very risk averse. So if it works, if it could work in the legal sector, it can certainly work in sectors outside of legal. People are more willing to take a chance. Interesting. Lawyers that are risk adverse. That goes against everything I think of. I, it's hard, it's hard okay. to believe. All right. So let's, <laughs> let's uh, continue around the horn with Jeanetta's focus question on culture and country. Yes, Vichelle. I think that's a really good point. Back to Jeanetta's point about, you know, in other firms in other countries outside of the US, UK, what would push for adoption? So I want to sort of put this out there. I think a huge reason, as Evan said, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, law firms have moved in that direction is because they're getting pushed by the clients or being asked those questions, whether formally in RFPs where you have to give formal written responses or in general, the direction is the U.S. as a market, as a business engine more innovative and therefore always pushing for the the fringes become mainstream over time. You know, they're always pushing at the edges. What more, what more? What we did with manufacturing, even though there were borrowed concepts from Toyota, but what we did in manufacturing has now seeped very thoroughly into the services sector. And then from services deep into professional services sector, which requires an even additional layer of um, deep knowledge, deep expertise, years of training and law schools and, you know, in, in, um, in accounting, auditing, all of it. I think a lot of it is driven by market forces. Market forces push us to be better 
I am actually not a lawyer, so I'm the fourth non-lawyer in the podcast here. I can only speculate that we probably have a very healthy, a very robust judicial system, which also means the volume of regulations and laws having the federal and the state uh, jurisdictions means that there's just a lot more to consume, a lot more to know. So when I talked earlier about connecting the dots, there's a lot of dots that need to be connected constantly. Even at the state level, you know, if you're practicing at the state level, various counties, Evan made uh, mention of COVID rules being different statewide and then at the county level and so on and so forth. A lot of law in the US is practiced in a very fragmented way, uh, is run very in a very fragmented way. So does that push us to create more need for connecting and being on top of subject matter, being on top of market trends and being sharp for the clients? Probably, that's probably. So I, I can't comment on what it is in other countries, but I'm guessing that is a huge driver in the US and UK market. Could I, could I just, Vishal, you, you made me think of something that I, I thought I might throw in. And Jeanette, you might. This is a kind of quite a fun thing that you could do with a group to get them thinking about um, sort of knowledge sharing. I mean, one thing is, you, you know, you can ask the question, you know, what would happen if nobody shared what they knew? And it's a bit of kind of reverse kind of uh, reverse engineering. Or you could do a bit of reverse brainstorming. So um, one thing I've done where you're looking at, well, how could we get better at this? And, and this is borrowed from a guy called Chris Collinson, who does this thing around sabotage. Uh, and the question is, yeah, how would you sabotage knowledge sharing within your organization? And it's a really fun exercise to do, mainly because people are far more good at coming up with negative, slightly subversive things than they are positive things. So what you do is you get all this stuff coming out and then people go, yeah, that goes on. Yeah, I've seen some of that. And then what you do, well, OK, how do we make it better? Well, we just reverse it. So you just flip it, do the opposite, and then things will get better. So I, I always... I I always recommend a bit of sabotage. That is a great way because you're right. I think the the human framework is all about finding the negatives and the pain points is just easy. That's just, yep, ah, you know, that's her comfort level to some degree. And, And by planting that seed definitely opens up the brain pan to say, hey, you know, if you can easily identify, and usually that's how I've done it trying to introduce KM, right? So they're like, you know what? It's easier if I just tell you some maybe some pain points you may be familiar with, like people go on vacation or they retire and didn't tell anybody or, 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 which we have lots of examples off top of our heads of the issues that happen routinely in any part of any business structure. So yeah, I love that idea, the sabotage. Well, the sabotage is like pointing the fingers to the problems and stay there to solve it. So I say, are you complaining? Are you frustrated? Are you asking yourself why well if you have the answer that's good we can work together if you don't have the answer i can facilitate this process in reality km in the law sector or outside the sector i think it regards also facilitation uh, a lot of patient especially in, in business where there are risk reluctance like in law firms so you have to convince them maybe you have you need more patient and i also agree with heaven when he says that artificial intelligence is cool technology is cool but let's start from the basic and bring uh, the five key points the five five big problems solved very quickly so the quick wins so that's it yeah and i was i was going to say the same around that coordination piece 
you know we can connect the dots but once they're connected we have to actually coordinate things to support that collaboration and then that continuous improvement happens from there which are also the knowledge maps when you create the knowledge yeah. maps you just connect the dots and just people knows who does what and who knows what and so and this is also learning so all the points from heaven to vishal to here and are here i think probably every organization that's existed has done km but some re organizations realize they're doing km and some organizations don't or they haven't got a word for it that anybody who's asked somebody else oh have you ever faced this kind of problem before have you produced this kind of document that's kind of km it's just that some organizations are doing it in a more uh kind of systematic organized explicit way and others it just goes on so i don't think it's an alien thing i don't think you, you sort of you suddenly start doing this weird thing so when i i think back was in 1991 two when i started at, at link later setting up a, what was called a know-how system and it which was essentially collecting documents that the lawyers had produced and putting them onto a database adding metadata so if somebody was facing a similar question or they didn't have to reinvent the wheel and that's how we described it if you do this you don't have to reinvent the wheel and then about four years later i saw this this conference for a thing called knowledge management and i suddenly had a name for what i was doing it was like wow this thing exists i'm a knowledge manager who would have thought and I can still remember the discussions we had in Linklaters about whether we could change from being know-how to knowledge. And we would say, well, we can't call ourselves knowledge because that would just, there'd be this whole ontological debate amongst the lawyers about whether we can do that or not. And now we don't even think about it. And I, I think if it's, any, if it's any comfort to you, you know, we're operating in, I, I forget that, 23, 24 countries around the world, and we all have the same knowledge system. You know, we have... We have a system called Know How Online, and wherever you are in the world, you go onto it, it's still got the same look and feel and everything else. So, you know, it's culturally, it's across everyone. I think Evan's point is absolutely key. If you're looking to do this, you've got to, you've got to get those hearts and minds as to why you're doing it. And I always think the easiest thing is, if, you, if we do this stuff, it will make your life easier because that's the most attractive sell in the world. Will it make my life easier? Beyond that, it's going to increase effectiveness, it's going to increase efficiency, it's going to reduce risk. But above all, what's really going to matter to me, it's going to make my life easier. I don't have to spend hours trying to work out things from first principles, trying to find a template agreement, trying to find out what is our good practice around this, what are the hot topics in my particular, particular sector, because it's there, somebody else has done it before. I think the danger is, you know, when I've worked with kind of groups who are introducing a kind of a knowledge management strategy that's the bit they forget they get all excited about what they're going to do and some of the technology but then they forget hmm, why are we actually doing this because that's what you've got to sell to people and if you can get people behind it if you can get the champions as Evan said that's really important if you call them champions knowledge agents whatever get them on board and they you know, they can be the people that diffuse this through the, through the organization. Um, Ian, I have to ask, on this cultural sector piece of adoption of KM, right, uh, in cultural meaning regional or country or ethnicity, right? So I hear what you're saying. You've got a backbone of IT that builds the way things will happen, right? And for those folks to come on board, you're already there. You've, you've got a system in place that 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 leads the behaviors, right? But part of your gig is learning. So how do you, how do you suggest 
pre-K, first grade level, how do you, learning-wise, what is the way that you would suggest? Because we have all faced this, but I'm, I'm asking your specific role as the learning guy for your organization because KM is those two to me are synonymous learning and, and KM should be synonymous. Um, so how do you introduce the concept in a learning behavior for people to start? So it's not a hard sell is what I'm getting to. Which I think one of the toughest gigs I've had is talking to a load of students about knowledge management and the way I've approached it and not necessarily we'd do this in a law firm, but it's quite a good thing to reflect on is to reflect on the knowledge that you need to drive a car and how you go about acquiring uh, that knowledge and how you learn that. Because it's unlikely that you just get in a car, try a few things, and then just drive off down the road. Um, although I was doing it, I was doing it once with a group, and there was a guy from Australia there who said, yeah, that's exactly how I learned how to drive. That's how we do things there. Um, but you sort of, so you get that idea of there's explicit knowledge. So it could be in the UK, it's the highway code. It could be the manual for the car, et cetera. But as you learn to drive, you know that there's a whole load of stuff that's happening at a subconscious level as well when you drive along, stuff that you're doing, but you don't even know that you're doing. So you start to get that, that knowledge of that. So that, that's, that's one thing I've tried with a, with a group. Uh, in, in other settings that I've used, I've got people to just think about, so what, what sort of knowledge do you need to do your job um, or you use in your organization? So with a law firm, it might be, well, there's kind of knowledge about the law, but also we, we've got knowledge about our clients as well. Oh, and we've also got the knowledge relating to how you might structure a transaction. So it's kind of project management knowledge. Or if we open a new office, there's a whole load of knowledge associated with that. Or recruitment. Or if you step into a leadership position, what's the knowledge? So you start to kind of to break it down and think, goodness, there's a whole load of knowledge that we're using. But then you say, so what is the most critical knowledge? What is the knowledge? So I think you interviewed Paul Corney, and I learned this from Paul Corney. And he said, you know, what is the... If somebody, you know, what is the knowledge that you can't replace, you can't replicate, that is in somebody's head and they walk out of the door and bang, it's gone. And then people start thinking, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's the critical knowledge. And then you say, well, okay, how can you make sure you get the critical knowledge to the people that can do something with it? Because knowledge is no good if it just sits in a, in a database and nobody uses it. It has no value whatsoever. So how do you get it to somebody who can produce something, you know, that valuable from it? So I think just try and break it down. What we usually do in this framework with us three being the co-hosts of the KM show here at the KM lobby is we wrap things up with a burning question. Let's go around the horn with burning questions. Monica, would you like to go first? Do you have, I, I do have a question actually. I'm, I, I think it might be on the, on the back of what Evan was talking about and Michelle earlier on, which is uh, what are the kind of top health indicators and KPIs that you guys are, are looking at and using yeah. at the moment? Um, so this is a difficult question. I will preface it with that and I'll let uh, Evan and Ian uh, chime in as well. Um, I think it's a difficult question because there is a portion of it that's quantifiable and then there's a very large portion of it that is anecdotal. It just is. Knowledge management is experiential, um, therefore hard to um, capture and put a tag on. But because it's experiential, there are some things you can count whatever you can count you can count 
clicks, you can count click throughs, you can see how many times documents were opened, if there was an exemplar library, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can see how many times people are using it. If you've uh, deployed a search engine, you can see how people are using it, how effectively they're using it. Anything that's electronic that can be visited and tracked, of course, can be counted. Same goes for research databases, which you can then um, add up and see is this worth the money we're paying for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other half, um, and I don't know if it's in half and half, but uh, definitely the other side of uh, the KPI is what people um, feel they know or don't know, or how long they have to struggle to find something to, um, to have an answer. Um, so there are tools we've put into place where if you need to have an answer to a question, um, can you ask it in a more <laughs> informal way as opposed to just email? So it's not just one-on-one. -on -one, it's not a phone culture. Uh, we do live in the 21st century. There are tools out there that can capture threads and that are searchable. Um, that um, we can't necessarily count every time the question was asked because a lot of times it will be by serendipity that somebody else will read it or it will be by um, uh, um, a, a comment by a senior partner and that junior associates who may otherwise have not been part of the conversation can, can see because the conversation has been captured in a public thread, et cetera. There are other ways to find out how lawyers are perceiving if they're getting what they need uh, when they need it. Um, so we ask through surveys, we ask our lawyers, do you get it? Um, sometimes there is recency bias, so that can go either ways, uh, but we asked them, and I will close this and pass it on to my colleagues by this one anecdote. One of the most endearing compliments we got recently, unsolicited, uh, and I'm also playing by recency bias, this is not the only compliment we've gotten, but a recent one where one of our rock star associates was interviewed by a legal uh, publication. And in their interview, they were asked, what are the kinds of things that keep you at your firm? Or what are the kinds of things that make a difference um, in your day-to-day? And they mentioned two departments on the support side. One of them was litigation support and the other one was knowledge management and research. It's a high compliment because that was an unscripted, unsolicited uh, comment, but it was also an acknowledgement of the fact that at the associate level, they find that this is something that's useful enough, not just useful enough, but actually um, a factor that makes them decide whether it's worth continuing their career uh, without the sector, sector. So that part is hard to, I have to wait for those interviews. <laughs> it's hard for, for that to be measured, but it is a direct answer to, is this effective? Is what we're doing effective? Like I said, it's gonna always be a blend of what we can measure, what we can gather and then make sense of. We didn't talk about sense-making and knowledge management, although I had that idea earlier. Um, and then what will sometimes just pop up um, through, uh, through serendipity and find out that, yeah, it is actually valued. Well, just thinking how I how I could add to that answer because it's it's a, it's a perfect answer. You know that blend of quantitative and, and qualitative. You were talking about surveys, um, Michelle, and every every couple of years we do a a global firm wide engagement survey, and there's a limited number of questions in that, but there are a couple 
which relate to what we do, which is, you know, and it's statements that you have to agree with or disagree with. You know, I have access to the knowledge and information I need to do my job efficiently, is number one. And the second is we do a good job of sharing knowledge across the organization. And you can say agree, strongly agree or disagree, strongly disagree. But then you are given the option to kind of add, add sort of comments to that. And I think this is incredibly helpful because you can then break the data down. You know, Jeanette, you're talking about different countries, so you could analyze it by office. You could analyze it by a, a particular practice area, a specialism of law. You could, you could analyze it by level, whether it's a partner or an associate lawyer or a non-lawyer. And that gives probably sort of richest data, which is then supplemented by, as you say, you know, is anybody using the systems? How many people are using the systems? You know, how long are they on the systems for? Where are these people that are using the systems? And then the anecdotal feedback that you get on the ground from our kind of knowledge, our knowledge champions, our knowledge workers, you know, stuff that they're hearing you know, in the, the informal exchanges. So it's a mix of different things that you blend together. What I'm hearing is a returning engagement, really. And that's what we're all measuring, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. definitely what I measure. Yeah. Apart from your clicks and your, you know, yeah. how many how many documents and you know, how many people are, are viewing them and how many do you actually have in the system? But it's actually what is their return on engagement? I mean, it, you kind of after ten thousand documents, twenty thousand makes no. You can't keep counting uh, documentation yeah. or you know your assets. You have to start counting that that return on the engagement. Um, and I was wondering whether that, you know how different ways that we did that. And I wonder if another measure as well is, is for the kind of the health of the system is the amount of improvement that comes out of it. So if somebody uses a document and yeah. then says, yeah, that was great. But what I think we could do to make it even better is X, Y and Z. You know, to what extent does that happen? Um, so is there that, that culture? Continuous improvement. improvement. Good question, Edwin. Would you like to answer that one? <laughs> sure. So, no, I'll... I'll... I'll point out um, first that Ian and Vishal's, everything mm. they said, I agree with. Internal metrics are important uh, where they exist. Um, number of searches made, number of times that a brief was drafted using that AI workflow and you know, all of that stuff, mm. it's helpful. Mm. I'll touch upon something just because um, this is one area that, that they didn't mention fully um, that I think it also is important is to look from an external perspective because again, we're not a, a nonprofit. We do need to get clients. We do need to keep clients happy. We do want to try to continue to bring additional um, potential clients to our firm. So from an external perspective, visibility is another uh, KPI, right? It's making sure that the world knows that your firm is doing everything it can to, um, to be better, um, to come up with better answers. You know, something that took our firm... Um, probably a week to put together. We put together a COVID-19 litigation tracker on our website that tracked every labor and employment case uh, that touched upon COVID-19 issues. Uh, we put it on our website. Uh, we were the first firm to do it for labor and employment. It very quickly you know, went viral to the point that it was back in, I guess, March when we rolled it out or thereabouts um, to today. It still is the number one hit on Google if you Google COVID-19 employment litigation. That brought so many extra eyes to our firm. It was a KM project. It brought so many eyes to our firm. Uh, CNN, Reuters, Newsweek, The Atlantic, Forbes, they all cited to our tracker. They wrote articles about it. That was a KM project. Can we say it brought in X number of clients with an exact number? No, but we brought in a lot of business for people that were looking to get advice and information about COVID-19 employment issues. And we had 
an exponential number of extra hits on our website where while they were there, they learned about our firm's resources, expertise, ability, and so on. Getting external visibility in ways that can be tracked um, is just as important from my perspective to the internal metrics. It still will be a combination of anecdotal and hard objective facts. When we have attorneys from our firm saying, I got another new client because they came to the website and reached out to me because I was our attorney in this office or KM initiatives and projects really help sell the department in that respect. It would be an extra service for free. You know, we are very expensive uh, talking about business. Yeah, it, it was, it, it really was, it was, it was terrific. And, and just to, to follow up on the social aspect of it, I mean, we were thrilled. We, we put this stuff out, you know, at the outset thinking, hopefully this will help people. In addition to the heat maps, we put out resources, documents, forms employers could use, knowing that probably 95% of them would never even reach out to us or thank us, but find helpful forms and be able to keep people working during a very hard time. Um, but we did receive you know, a whole host of, of really super messages. Um, we got one from, my favorite one was from a nonprofit that helped homeless youth during the pandemic. Um, and they reached out to, to us, our chairman, and said, you know, Roger is our, our chairman, Roger Quillen. Um, and they said, Roger, you know, you don't know me, I don't know you, but I just want to thank you so much because your firm put out resources that I couldn't find anywhere else. I couldn't find them on the CDC website. I couldn't find them on the OSHA website. You helped us bring our employees who help at-risk youths back to work safely. And, you know, thank you. I can't thank you enough. And that was, you know, their KM projects that had a real societal benefit. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, a lot of us moved out of the practice of all like I did because we wanted to, you know, to really find a way to help people. Um, and help make things work more smoothly, help make the practice of law work better and more efficiently. Um, and things like that uh, were really great to see. Well, you've just added in a whole new concept in my brain that KM is part of advertising or sales and marketing. I, I have never made that clear understanding until you just said it because I was like, it is almost a survival methodology now for most businesses to put something out there of value to somebody because it is better money spent there than another billboard or another radio spot on some FM station somewhere. We've converted to some degree business operations to providing some social value for some reason, right? And like you said, to have those agencies cite you guys as the guy, it's like, wow, that had to have been a huge home run across the board in your KM world. So Ian, let's give you let's let's give you the microphone. Any last tidbits, any last thing you want to say before you check um, out? I think it's probably a message for you know, just just looking at who this is going out to. Yeah, you know, people who are thinking of doing this in their in their organization. And I guess my thing was, you know, why wouldn't you do it? You know, I, I always think it's, you know, it's the most, it's the most sensible kind of pragmatic thing in the world to, to do. And when you think about how much kind of knowledge infuses what any organization does, you know, this highly kind of valuable asset that we all, um, that we all deal with, you know, why wouldn't you give it the care and attention that it, that it deserves? So I think that would be my final my final thought. Okay. I love it because I agree. <laughs> I will go. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for participating. It's, 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 been, it's been the best hour I've spent for, for ages. So thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I, we're getting down there. So Monica's asked her burning question. Janetta, burning question? 
Yes, we have been talking about knowledge sharing and during this pandemic, it seems that lawyers or professionals have shared much more because they needed them, because they missed the one-to-one the -one meeting in the corridor or in the office. But how about compliance? How about keeping confidential information that especially in the law sector is important to pick secret? I tell you because when I work at the law, I mean, in a law firm, uh, I had the compliance manager always back to me and say, be careful, we are a law firm and we need to respect the law. So, hallelujah for knowledge sharing, but let's not break any law. So how do you deal now that people are more willing to share knowledge, but sometimes you have to say no? How do you say no? Why? I mean, the reason why, how do you explain it? Yes, share, but so this is a dilemma. How would you approach this in your organization, in your law firm? Who's going first? So I, I will say this, uh, you're correct in terms of knowledge management is easier if it's public information or if it is not sensitive information. It is also useful when it is client-related information. It, by nature, it's all client confidential. So we do have an obligation to protect it. So when we talk about knowledge management, actually even the tools where we roll out to, to search to um, to share like in social uh, enterprise networks, et cetera, we do have rules of the road that people have to engage in. Um, for search engines, we protect, we have ethical walls for anything that is explicitly mentioned to be seen by very few eyes. For everything else that is searchable, and I'll, I'll talk about search engines because I think that's where it starts to get a little tricky. And in knowledge management, where knowledge managers have tried to deploy search engines while keeping, uh, while being respectful of making sure that the client information is not shared where it shouldn't be shared, it has to be accompanied with a lot of training and wherever ethical walls um, need to be deployed, they should be. Evan and I, if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to speak on Evan's behalf, but I think we're, we'll work for national firms. Mercifully, we're not, I will say at least yet, held to the same privacy standards as, say, firms in the EU probably are. Um, it doesn't help that every country in the EU is a separate country, uh, and so they probably have their own local jurisdictions as well. Having said that, GDPR is global and U.S. firms are also obligated to respect as long as we're talking about EU subjects. If we're not talking about EU subjects, then we are subject to whatever local laws. We don't have a federal law still in terms of privacy. If this conversation is going in that direction, we have one in California, CCPA. Yeah. We have other jurisdictions that are coming up, Virginia, et cetera. So in terms of being mindful of privacy from that angle, there is a growing understanding, but we're not as mature or in the same place where a lot of the EU firms are, EU countries are. In terms of just being respectful of confidentiality and disclosure, I will say this, I think the lawyers in the US are held to a professional code of conduct that is inherently understood that there is information that's confidential, there's privilege, there are rules 
around that that everybody's and code of conduct that everybody's very well aware of. So I know when our lawyers share information, they do everything to make sure that they're not sharing something that's or not sharing it in a way that reveals anything that's sensitive related to a client. But there's still a ton other information <laughs> is out there to be explored. Um, I will say this after you know doing this for 23 years, and I started my my career as a as a business researcher. The challenge in knowledge management that we had 23 years ago was not being able to find enough pieces of information. Everything was on a very different system. Digging for information was a very different challenge back then. Today's challenge is digging through it, wading through it. There's just so much. That is why we need tools like search engines. We need filters. We need data visualization. We need analytics only because there is so much. It's explosive in nature. So I I think that's the difference in knowledge management compared to the two decades uh, and plus that I've been in it. But there is also a more respectful awareness just started reading a book this morning, actually, The 26 Words That Changed the Internet. It's written by Jeff Kosef, who is a cybersecurity professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. And he talks about Section 230 in, an, uh, in the Communications uh, Decency Act that essentially explains, I know I'm going way off topic now, but it is, it is important to understand where how the explosion of information happened on the internet and then what enables it, and then how that is now being debated in light of greater awareness around cybersecurity and privacy. It's an interesting topic, and it applies to internal knowledge management as well. Um, Janetta, so your question is well-placed. Sorry for the really long answer. Um, I'm Michelle, we're going to start putting you on a time uh, stopwatch. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Evan already forewarned you, so you know you have no excuse. I'm sorry. Uh, short answer uh, from my perspective, and first say, once again, what Vishal said is is right on point. Um, but the, the other thing that I would add is we in KM don't necessarily have to be the end all be all experts in this area. What we need to do is partner with our peers in IT. Typically, at law firms um, and probably in other organizations, the IT folks are the ones that are wading through the security and privacy concerns um, much more than other departments are. And from my perspective, becoming best friends with your peers in IT will be the easiest way to ensure that you're compliant and all of your tools and all of your systems are up to all of the codes that you have to to be up to, um, whether they are legally required for jurisdiction or best practices or just things that your clients want because your clients are financial institutions or whatever, and you need to meet certain standards, working with IT to get there and using leaning on them for their expertise in this space will get you much faster to the, uh, to the proper answer and uh, making sure that you're in compliance than if a KM person tried to muddle through it on his or her own. Exactly. Dealing with the IT and at the same time to maybe the compliance managers who knows piece by piece the laws. And so not doing anything that really break your knowledge management effort in sharing knowledge, but at the same time, not breaking the law. And so respecting the clients and trying to facilitate the life in your workplace from your employees or your associate in your case. I would edit out my answer and keep Evan and Jeanette's. 
the long <laughs> scenic route. Oh, no. Generally speaking, take my answers, take Vishal's answers and just mesh them together to get somewhere in the middle. There's a, a great story that I love that I think sort of is, is my mantra here. There is an app called Lendo. Um, and essentially what they did, they were an app that helped lenders figure out whether or not the, the subjects would be too risky to give a, 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 to lend money to or not. Um, and they looked at all of these data points um, about their credit history and their how much money they make and whether they live at home and all that stuff. It turns out that one of the most valuable pieces of data points, one of the most predictive was their average uh, cell phone charge, whether they were at 10%, 20%, 30%, 5%, whatever, over a period of time. And you know, it makes sense because they're maybe a go-getter, uh, but somebody who is um, much more reserved and more organized, more risk-averse, they're more, they're more likely to pay their bills on time, things like that, right? So who would have thought that unless you threw all the data there and, and saw what would come out of it? So I, I love that story because that's where I think law is going. Predictive data analytics is the oil. It's really where I think a lot of legal practitioners will be going. Um, and KM takes on those projects, those initiatives to, uh, at most law firms. Um, we're looking to be able to figure out based upon all of the variables. We've handled hundreds of thousands of cases, right? Or, or you know, millions of cases if you take other law firms and put them all together. And there are so many things uh, that you can take out of that if you can somehow structure that data or analyze unstructured data and make predictions from it as to how long will this case last? How much money will it take to get from this stage to that stage? If it's a case um, by uh, a gentleman who's 62 years of age, who lives in this county, who works in this job, who's asserting these claims, you could really make some predictions if you have all the data points there and then can run the analyses. We're doing a lot of things with our internal data in that space and external data in that space, bringing it all together. But we're looking for that, you know, what's your cell phone charge for law? We're trying to find things that, but for these great projects, lawyers would just not get because that's not what they're focusing on. They're focusing on one individual case. They're not necessarily thinking um, or have ready access to all the data on thousands and thousands of cases. So uh, it will make lawyers much better at predicting much better at figuring out what's likely to happen better at pricing cases out there are so there's so much value to come from that and i think i would add only a couple of small points i think most of what evan was covering was from the law firm perspective and that's what i would repeat if i if i did the only other uh things you know something you mentioned about augmented reality etc i think courtroom technology you know, because you mentioned law in general, like where's, uh, you know, what's happening uh, with knowledge management and law. This is maybe not true, true knowledge management in the true sense of it, but anything that's still very mechanical has the potential for becoming digitized. So whether it is someone showing their exhibits, so instead of doing still video or, you know, foam board printouts or whatever it is, being able to bring more advanced technology, which seemed like science fiction and Mission Impossible movies, bringing more of that. We know during COVID, there was definitely a leap from in-person hearings to virtual, which meant virtual depositions, virtual uh, sort of, you know, exhibit sharing, so on and so forth. So I would say that's something is probably around the bend. 
Other things that are mechanical and probably in place for good reason and in place because of a lot of other issues might change right down from, you said, stenography uh, at the start of the conversation, right? So just court reporting is still done in the same way it has been done for many, many years. There are tools, obviously, for light transcription, et cetera. It can be debated, well, wait a minute, then we can't stop it the way we do a life person and so on and so forth. So there's still kinks to be worked out, but technologies exist. And I think courtroom technology is also something very interesting. And that'll come back to the lawyers, right? Because they're the ones who will be actually using, interacting, or dealing with any kind of change uh, on that front. On the last bit, I would say is, you know, eight years ago, I used to work for Ernst & Young, eight, nine years ago, and I visited their office in London, and I did see almost the Mission Impossible board in front of me. We had a very special room where we would bring in the clients, where you literally <laughs> did just exactly what Tom Cruise did, and you um, showed how different data points could be seen um, in a very nice, cool way. It was all public data. It was all gathered, curated data at the time. But to me, that is a window uh, for what is possible. So it is no longer the domain of just science fiction movies. It is very real. I saw it. I, there is need. Like I said, I'll go back to my knowledge management uh, angle, and I think Evan mentioned it as well, his point about predictive analytics. There is such a great need to be able to pull information, even from the information that exists. So a lot of the advances that have been made right now in data visualization, Evan mentioned a couple of tools, but yeah, I can talk about Lex Machina and other tools where they've used the power of analytics on public data. They've not generated the data. They've essentially just um, honed the, the search engines and the filters, et cetera, to extract more data that can be, that can give you that one extra edge, that one extra value that you wouldn't, not just wouldn't, it would take you days to compile and synthesize through. And through the power of data visualization, Ravel View, et cetera, you can do so much more um, in such less time. So that is the power that's gonna um, be, become more mainstream. I, I still think it's not mainstream. It's there, but it's not mainstream yet. So I would say that's coming too. Yeah, so the one other point I'd make is artificial intelligence. There are a whole host of really cool, really exciting vendors out there who are doing some amazing things in the artificial intelligence space. No law firms are really building AI on their own. You need to work with vendors, but the vendors are outstanding and they partner with law firms to build some amazing stuff. So it's now, you know, we already have tools at our firm where an attorney could sit down and in about 10 minutes, churn out a first draft of a brief that already has the case law to prove the points that they want to try to prove by just sort of walking them through with a few clicks and the brief is done. That's a company called Case Text Compose is doing that already. There are AI tools that can, uh, like LegalMation, that can drag and drop a complaint and presto, here's the answer to that complaint for you, a first draft of it. Here's discovery to send to the other side, already done. So the lawyers cannot have to spend 10, 15 hours of busy work to get to the point where they are critically thinking and actually putting on their lawyer brain, getting rid of all of that mundane, busy work that no one enjoys anyway, and letting the lawyers focus on strategy um, and critical thought is also where law is going. Um, I think more and more technology will take the bad parts of practicing law 
and, and do those in a matter of seconds and leave the good parts to the attorneys. And clients will be thrilled about this because they're not paying you know, 10 hours for something that had 45 minutes of, a, of an attorney's attorney brain and uh, nine hours and 15 minutes of the attorney's clerical So what brain. you're saying is everybody should have a decrease in their billing for all attorneys. Great. All they'll right. Be, I they'll love be able it. To, That's but they'll be able to handle 10 times as many cases. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Just poke it. Yeah, fun. no, it's, it's true. Well, these are all things that I think are uh, instrumental in outlaying, but providing the foundation of the future, right? I think the drivers of this field, and field being knowledge management, uh, twofold. One is the instru- uh, institutional uh, organizations, just as Vichelle, I didn't even think about that, right? So how the courts operate will modify how the lawyers interface, lockstep that progression. But in the order of who's first, it sounds like in the U.S. anyway, even though things have changed and modified in the last year and a half, two years, that had to adopt and adapt to the current environment. The idea that there are trend leaders, those folks that are uh, early adopters of what is to come, can see the future and are moving towards that. There's always going to be the prehistoric types that are just, uh, as my friend Janetta uh, termed, the permafrost of the uh, folks out there that are just never going to change. And by God, I'm not doing that. What do you see as the trend overall? Where are we? If you had to grade, let's go back to the kids in school. Are we at an F? Are we at an F minus? Are we at a C plus? And I mean that not just in your business sector, but if you had to generalize law. I don't know if I'm that generous. But... Entirety across the continental U.S. or at least the U.S. for for just for conversation. Uh, Where you're you actually put... asking for grades? Like, like actual I grades? Am. Give me a grade. <laughs> Grade it. Um, I, I think I'm just a tough grader then. <laughs> I would say I've gone from <laughs> the red pencil. The red pencil is out. Yes. Um, I think there's still there's still a long ways to go. I think there's still a long ways to go. I, I would say not my firm in particular, but all firms across yeah. the country. I'd say pre-pandemic C, post-pandemic or during pandemic. You know, at this point now, uh, hopefully it'll be post-pandemic soon. Um, a B. I think there really was a sea change um, over the past year. Well, thank you all for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and hear all things going on in your world. Thank you, Edwin. Appreciate the opportunity. This has been great. Thank you all for having us. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah, I agree. I agree a lot. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights about the present and the future, your past experiences. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You have enjoyed the incredible edition of the KM Lobby. Please feel free to join the cause. We believe KM is and can benefit all. Do what you can and add to the wave of positive change. Your donations are a welcome way to make sure your vote is counted in this important movement. Explore more at pioneer-ks.org.